Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Katie Harrington. Katie's a litigation associate who, up until recently, had spent the entirety of her career in the firm's Houston office. Not only do we cover the reason for Katie's recent move to Boston, but spend some time talking about Texas, which definitely took this Midwesterner out of her comfort zone. Katie also shares about how she attended college with an eye towards getting a PR marketing job for a professional sports team, but instead she went to law school. In addition to this, Katie shares what it was like navigating college, law school, and her early career as a member of the LGBTQ community, and how when she started to practice at a firm, she decided that she wasn't going to hide who she was. I can't possibly summarize everything that Katie and I touch on, but I will say that we did bond a bit over just how disorienting it is to start law school when you don't know anything about the law, and Katie gives some wonderful advice about just how important it is to like and truly enjoy the people that you work with. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. As you know, well, with every guest, I'm sorry, I say the same thing. I'm always excited to have everyone here, especially you, Katie, today, because I've been trying to pin you down for a while. So psyched to have you here, but I'm going to have you start like everyone else. Could you give me your professional introduction? Yes. So I'm a six-year associate at Foley and Lardner. I spent the past five years in the Houston office, but I recently moved to the Boston office. I'm in the litigation group, which primarily involves energy litigation for me. All right. So we're going to talk all about that work stuff in a bit, but I want to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I am born and raised in Houston, Texas, and I have lived there my entire life except for the past five weeks. Okay. So tell me more. What was what was childhood like? Do you have siblings? Just tell me more about, about Katie growing up in Houston. Yeah. So I'm super close with my family. I have a younger sister. She is just a year and a half younger than me. I absolutely loved living in Houston. If you ask anyone, I'm like the city's biggest ambassador. I'm obsessed with it. Um, I love the people there. It has an amazing food scene. But yeah, super close to my family. They actually helped me move to Boston. And they actually stayed up here for like six weeks because they didn't want to go home. And they it was the first time I've ever left. So they were pretty sad about it. All right. we Like I said, I promise everybody we will talk about why she's in Boston, but we're not there yet because <laughs> I'm sure everybody wants to know why the Houston, Houstonite, Houstonian, what is it? Houstonian, Houstonian. is that right? Yeah, Houstonian. Why the Houstonian has left. But when you're a little girl, you're growing up, was law what you knew you wanted to do? I can't say that. It was not what I knew I wanted to do. I, I definitely wasn't the type of person that my whole you know upbringing, I said I was going to be a lawyer. But I that will was say, me, by the way. I was that yeah. type of person. <laughs> <That's awesome>. I <laughs> but I hear I other people weren't. So go I on. always I always think about, you know, growing up in like elementary school and like holding a sign that says what you want to do. And I think mine probably changed every single year of my life, like from anywhere from like actress to professional sports player. But yeah, those didn't pan out for me. 
But yeah, it's definitely not something I knew I wanted to do until college. But it is something where I feel like people were always telling me that I should be a lawyer. No specific reasons, except I was thinking about this the other day when, you know, just thinking about this question. And when I was five years old, I would like refuse to wear dresses. And it really upset my mother because she would spend so much money on dresses. And then we actually entered into a contract when I was like five or six. And it said, I will wear whatever my mom buys for me as long as it is not a dress and it doesn't have ruffles, flowers, or pink on it. And so that was at a pretty young age where I feel like my negotiation. you draft skills, that? Did you draft that contract for her? I, I know it was handwritten. I, I can picture it in my head. And so I feel like I might have been the drafter. And I, I'm sure I left out a lot of really important language and, you know, how enforceable it was. I, I'm not sure. I have to ask a little bit more about it. Did <laughs> that contract, did your mom abide by it? Did she then buy you stuff that wasn't yeah, dresses? Yeah, no flower, I, and then you, you wore it. Yeah, she she did abide by the contract, but I feel like she definitely pushed the limits and, you know, would try and get like animal print and things that were not necessarily covered, you know, by the spirit of the agreement. But clearly, you know, that would also have polka dots. Yeah. Polka dots were not on there. No, she definitely bought a lot of polka dot stuff, but no dresses. So we, we finished that. That's awesome. I also want to know a little bit about the sports thing. You mentioned that for a while, maybe you were, what sport? What's your sport? So until, you know, ninth grade, I played softball. And then when I got to high school, I realized uh, I wasn't that good at it. And so then I moved on to lacrosse. And I actually became obsessed with lacrosse in high school. I traveled every summer to go play in various states and was really into that. But and I tried to play a little bit in college, but doing club lacrosse was just way too much on my schedule, unfortunately. I like to ask about that because I think once we start working in the office, we never see each other or frequently we don't see that side of the person. So you'll find out that somebody was really great at whether it be a sport or a hobby. So I just love getting that out of people. So how was it in high school? You're heading to college. What was the thought? What did you think you wanted to do then? So at that time, I really wanted to go work for a professional sports team after college. And I really wanted to do marketing and PR. And at the time, when I was 18, I wanted to get out of Texas. And so I looked at all of these colleges, like all across the Southeastern Conference. And I got into Auburn. And I was like, awesome, I'm going to go to Auburn. And I loved it. It was cool. Everyone was so nice. And so I actually sent in my acceptance letter saying I'm going to Auburn. And then, you know, as months go through that senior year of high school, I see all of my friends saying they're staying in Texas. And then I just kind of start getting, I guess, an early advance of homesick. And then I think, I don't want to go to a school in Texas. I, I can't leave. And so I ended up going to Texas A&M, which is pretty funny because it's an extremely conservative school. And if you know me, like it is just not somewhere you could see me at, but I actually love Texas A&M and I'm, I'm a very proud Aggie. And where is Texas A&M? How, how big is it? Tell me more about the school. And then I want to know more about you and why that's funny. So let's keep going. Yeah. So it is a huge school. I assume the student population is somewhere above 60,000 people at this point. It's an hour and a half outside of Houston in a small town called College Station, Texas, which is pretty much just a college town. 
And that's the name, College Station, because it's a college town. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, and so I'm learning, by the way, I don't know a lot about Texas. I actually had never visited Texas until a few years ago where I went to both, I think I went to Houston, Austin, and Dallas, all within like a two-month period, some for work, some some was personal. And I've since been, I think, to Houston a few times, but certainly not explored Which it. Which one was your favorite, though? Ooh, I don't know if it's fair. I will say my impression, and gosh, this this feels a little controversial, but I don't think Austin is really representative. Austin reminded me of Ann Arbor. Wow. For whatever I reason. I say Austin because that's what everyone says. Yeah, but I just don't know. But then Houston, I didn't get to see much of Dallas. Dallas was, I pretty much saw like the where I worked, just tall buildings. So Houston seemed like it had a bit more character to me, but I think that maybe because I got to see more of it. So that's my diplomatic answer because I'm not trying to I know people get upset. I don't I don't need emails about that. No, not me. I support that answer. <laughs> okay, but then tell me more about like you said, for you to go what ostensibly is this con- conservative school. So, why did that at first at least seem like a bit of a clash? Well, so when I say conservative, you know, more than just, you know, the connotation of that term, every year, you know, US News puts out all these college rankings, top 10, you know, whatever for every college. And A&M is almost always on the top 10 least LGBT friendly colleges. I had no idea. I'm talking like almost every year it is on that list. And so for me, I knew I was LGBT, like when I was I don't know, 17 is probably when I actually knew, but you know, it could go back to that five-year-old uh, contract of refusing to wear dresses. <laughs> so who knows when I, I actually knew. And so, and I went to a pretty conservative high school in Houston. And so to go from a conservative high school to a conservative college, it really just meant, you know, staying in the closet for another four years. Whereas I'm sure if I went to like a school in the North or like a small liberal arts school, I probably would have been out day one of college. And that just didn't happen at A&M. Most people I know, and I know a lot of LGBT people from A&M, most of them were not out in college. Or if they were, it was in the last few months when it was like, okay, we're getting out of the school. All right. We're going to talk more about that for sure, but I'm going to keep with the college thread or at least the academia thread when did law school come into play? Because you mentioned you had this eye for PR marketing. I'm going to work for a team. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So I actually did an internship with the Houston Astros. I'm sure you can see right now, I actually have an Astros coffee mug in my hand. And I absolutely loved getting to work with them. But, you know, my dad started just having conversations with me about you know, why not law school? And of course, I had never, you know, you think about being a lawyer, but not the actual steps of how to get there. And so my dad starts planting the seed in my head of like, oh, well, you you love sports. Why don't you just go to law school and become a sports agent? And, you know, I did not think about, you know, how feasible or lack thereof that was at the time. By the way, I feel like that's how it always starts. It's always like, if I want to be a sports agent, I got to go to law school. But okay, go on. I'm going to represent all these players on all these teams. And I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. And so he convinces me that it would be a good idea. And I end up applying, you know, taking your LSAT prep course and all of that. And... I I feel like since my dad and I really talked about it, I I really wanted to do a good job and you know work really hard and show my parents that like it was a good move for me. I was that type of person where I 
I absolutely loved it. I, I love my classes. Like I definitely drank the Kool-Aid of law school. And it's funny. I remember interviewing with this woman at a firm once and she, she goes, I always ask this question, but you know, and there's only one right answer. Did you like law school? And I was like, I did. Yeah, I loved it. And she was like, that was not the right answer. That was the wrong <laughs> answer. I, I wasn't sure. That's a trick question, though. Uh-huh. In a way. Okay. Yeah. You were supposed to say, no, it's not practical enough for me. I, I guess. Want to I be don't a practicing know. lawyer. Who knows? Okay. And you went straight through. Did you, I was did. there any time off in between? No, just a short uh, Europe backpacking trip and then off to law school. That's awesome. That counts. That's wonderful. And where did you go for? I think you mentioned it, but I'm not sure. Where did you go for law school? I went to a school called South Texas College of Law, and it's in downtown Houston. So, you know, I went back to my roots and I lived at home for three years. Really? Okay. Tell and tell me a little bit about it. Granted, you're a bit removed from law school, but I just feel like not only do I want to learn about you, but this is helping people learn a little bit about, I think, other areas, other markets for those who are like me and don't know a lot about Texas. Just give me a little more about the law school. Yeah, so South Texas is a school that is really focused on trial advocacy. I think they have more moot court and mock trial championships than any other law school in the country. It's a huge deal at the school. And so for me, I totally jumped right into doing moot court and became obsessed with it. I did maybe six or seven tournaments while I was in law school. And I, it was such an adrenaline rush where I just knew this is what I'm meant to, to do. And I had so much fun, you know, doing oral advocacy. Why do I feel like maybe you're able to take something like the spirit of sports or competition and find an equivalent with, is that, am I on the right path there? Absolutely, find an equivalent with yeah. school? No, I, I feel like it's, not necessarily the competitiveness of it, but just the the pressure of, you know, being in the moment and having to work so hard to get there. I just really enjoyed it. And I have continued the sports. I've done CrossFit for like six years now. So I'm, I've become addicted to that since finishing school. I say this on every podcast. I could take this a whole nother direction. I'm not going to, but I will share. So I have some very nerdy health and wellness leanings. And I've I've actually gone to some a CrossFit studio and did the non-CrossFit classes. But when you when you when you sort of follow that ancestral health paleo movement, you can't help but pick up a fair amount. And also, so we're recording this now in August 2020, still very much in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. When I was watching everything on Netflix earlier on, I, I, there's a couple CrossFit documentaries oh, that I found all. particularly. <laughs> yeah, we could talk more. We could talk more about that later. But let's transition to Foley a little bit. How does Foley come on the scene? How do you end up with, with Foley and Lardner? So I ended up doing a one-year clerkship after law school. I went to work at the 14th Court of Appeals. It's a state appellate court located in Houston. And to back up from there, I actually, my first year of law school, I was the type of person, I didn't really know any lawyers. I didn't have lawyers in my family. And so I felt pretty clueless about what should I be doing during my summers? You know, where should I go work? When should I be applying? And so it was January of the second semester of my first year. And I realized, oh, everyone already knows what they're doing. That's that's cool. Um, I should probably figure that out. Can we pause on that for a yeah, moment? Yeah. Just, just that's a big deal because... 
a bunch of people don't know what's going on, but the only ones talking about it are the ones who do know. And so you feel so clueless. And then you're like, wait, but aren't I in law school to learn? How does everyone already know what's happening? Yeah, I'll never forget my first day of law school. And you had to go around the classroom and say what type of law you wanted to do. The first day? Yeah. And everyone's answers were so polished. And I just thought, how am I supposed to know that? Because I don't know what I can't even name the areas of law. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because as I mentioned before we started recording, we are getting a fair amount of law students who are starting to listen. And I just hope that makes somebody feel better. I hope so too. (laughs) But it's true because you get someone who's like, well, you know, I'm returning to law school a bit later. I'm super interested in, you know, VC financing as it relates to the such and such sector. And you're like, what? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Similarly, you know, the world has changed since I went to law school and even since you went to law school. So maybe people are more intentional going in, but that feeling of not knowing what's going on. And I, I still joke about this. So just disclaimer, please no one do this. But that first summer of law school, part of me was like, but what if I got a job at the mall? And I know we don't do that anymore. I know we don't because it's coronavirus. But what if I got a job at like Banana Republic or Ann Taylor? At least I got a discount. At least I'd have the wardrobe and I could get paid because you're 1L summer. A lot of times you're looking at opportunities that are unpaid. And so it was always a bit crazy to me. And that's still how the industry is. And once again, I don't want angry emails, but I would joke that that seems like a great compromise to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's what I ended up doing. I So I sent my resume to like 50 to 70 judges, just, you know, basically asking if I could intern with them. And I ended up interviewing with Judge Ken Wise, who at the time was a district court judge for the 334th. And he goes, you know what, you went to a I went to a If you want to come intern here, that'd be great. And so I said, oh, yeah, that's that's awesome. I'd love to. And I interned with him. It was so great. Fast forward three years later, end of law school, Judge Wise actually ended up getting appointed to the 14th Court of Appeals. And he needed a briefing attorney basically the year I was going to graduate. And so I ended up going to work as a briefing attorney for him. And it was such a wonderful experience. It helped me with my writing so much. And I absolutely loved getting to work there. And then, and I know the question was, why did I come to Fuller? Yeah, how fully? Yeah. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And so I'm doing this clerkship and I absolutely loved appellate law. I I loved getting to review the briefs and I thought I would love being on the drafting side. And so at the time I thought I want to go work at like a mid-sized litigation boutique firm, not a big firm. I I really did not want to come to a big law firm. That's how it always goes. It's always like, nope, just I would never go to a large firm. But anyway, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) go on. And so a staff attorney walked into my office one day and he said, hey, there is a former briefing attorney who works at Gardeer Wynn Sewell. And he said, they're hiring. If you're interested, you know, it's it's a big firm, so you're going to have to work. And I said, okay, uh, that really wasn't on my radar. But yeah, I'd love to meet with them. So and obviously, Gardeer Wynn Sewell merged with Foley about two years ago is that regional Texas firm, about 250 lawyers, Houston office, about 60 attorneys. So I ended up going to meet Scott Ellis, who still works in Houston as a partner there. And we meet at a coffee shop downtown. And I tell him, you know, this is what I'm looking for. I I just, I want to be a 
a really good lawyer and I, I want to develop my skills really early on. I, I want to go to trial. I want to do depositions. And he was like, yeah, like we do that here. You can do that at this firm. And it really, from there on out, I mean, he stayed true to his promise. And that's when I ended up going to work there after my clerkship. And he was right. I've gotten to do a ton of stuff and I absolutely love working here. Okay. I have a couple different things I want to follow up on. Here we go. The first thing, Scott Ellis is great. Hope to get him on the podcast. I think he's the recruiting partner, the hiring partner for our Houston office. Also randomly, he and I went to college together, just extremely random. We didn't know each other, but we both went to the American University and just had to mention that. Two, there's two paths I want to take you down. One, I want to learn a bit about your practice, the development of your practice. But also, before we get there, let's pause because you mentioned you're out, you know, LGBTQ woman. When did and how does that work? And I, I don't need to get like too into the details of your personal life, but I assume by the time you're clerking or when you're in law school, you are out. But then entering, whether it be clerking or entering a large law firm as an, you know, out gay attorney, what what is that like for you? How did you navigate that? Yeah, no, there's there's a few parts to this question. I started coming out to people in college, but I fully came out to everyone, family and everything in law school. That's when it felt, you know, right for me time-wise and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm super close with my family and I felt like they should know before the world knows. And so for me, I I tell them and I tell everyone in law school And then I go into my clerkship, which was at the 14th, and I I just didn't feel comfortable being out that year, or being out at work, I should say. I was completely out outside of work, but this was a one-year clerkship for court, and it just, it wasn't for me. And so, you know, I was listening to your episode with Jack about omitting what you did from the weekend. And I, I did that every week. Like I was super guilty of doing that and just hoping people wouldn't ask like who else was involved in my plans at the time. So then fast forward, I get to Gardeer and I tell myself, I am so done with doing that and living half of my life, you know, out and work life not out. And at the same time, though, I, I think to myself, like, I don't feel like I have to come out to anyone anymore. And I'm so sick of having that awkward, uncomfortable conversation where it says, I need to tell you something, you know, and, you know, you do the whole thing. So I, I was so done with that at that point. And I, I'm basically thinking, you know, I'm just going to like work this into conversations like as I talk. You're just going to be yourself. You're just going to be who you are and see how it goes. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah, be myself. And so I think I'm just going to start mentioning it in in conversations. And then we have the Christmas party. You know, I've started three months. I don't know anyone. I've only been there three months. And I I think I'm just going to bring Stephanie and like introduce her as my girlfriend and hope it goes over well. And so I did that. And then it was super easy. And that strategy worked out really well for me. As usual, many things I could say, but a few things to backtrack. What you mentioned was, I think it's episode five, where I interviewed Jack Lord, who's the longtime partner at Foley, co-chair of our LGBTQA affinity group. So for anyone listening who wants to check that out. But yes, he talked about the closet and how insidious it can be and that feeling of should I mention this or shouldn't I mention that? 
And one thing when I was speaking with him that we talked about is, you know, the societal acceptance of someone who is within the LGBTQ community. It's, it's, it's dynamic, right? And I think it, and I'm saying, right, as if, you know, maybe you can expand on this, but it really does depend on the community you're in, maybe where you grow up. And so for some people, uh, they're probably at a place in their journey where it's just like not even a question, right? For because of who they are, who the who, where they work. But for others, I can imagine it's still a very big issue. So I just like that you, you know, you shared a bit of that, how in this one environment, you know, it just didn't make sense for whatever reason. But in a different environment, you're like, I just need to be who I am. Yeah. And I, I think knowing your audience and your community and surroundings are all really important things. I mean, if I'm with a client and they work for an oil and gas company and I, they're older and really conservative, it's not something I'm just going to affirmatively bring up on my own. At the same time, I'm not going to lie, but I'm definitely going to avoid that conversation if possible. And that still happens to this day, which is sad, but you know, that's, I feel comfortable doing that. Yep. And I'll give this example one more time for those who didn't listen to the Jack episode or who maybe didn't have the opportunity to, but within the um, kind of DNI circles for someone like myself, and there's all sorts of trainings on allyship and all that. I've been to one or maybe more where an exercise to give you a little sense of how hard it can be to hide who you are is to omit the pronouns of your spouse. Now, this is assuming somebody you know, I guess, straight cisgendered relationship. But unlike, um, so we just had terrible storms in Chicago and I was up on my roof and my husband, he helped me do X, Y, Z. But imagine me telling that story about, yeah, there was damage at my house and it was okay. There were some branches that we removed. I have to totally change that. And so for anybody who's never thought of that or encountered it, just consider what it would be like to either omit or try to change the pronouns of people in your life. And it's not that it's not the same. It's not the same as suddenly, but it gives you a tiny bit of, I think, a taste of the energy. I think it's like siphons energy away from someone to have to do that. Yeah. And even a few weeks ago, when we moved up to Boston, the mover was super chatty. And he goes, why, why'd you move up here? And I'm like, oh, my job. And he goes, well, who, who's that? And I'm like, my roommate, I, I, I don't know this mover, you know, I don't want any sort of you know, something weird to happen. And so he goes, Oh, so you and your roommate moved to Boston. I'm like, yes. <laughs> okay. But that's such a real example where you're like, yeah, I could say, and Stephanie's your wife now, right? Uh, so we're actually engaged. We're getting married next September. Well, I'm so happy to when we got Stephanie introduced so that the story <laughs> of why you moved can make sense. <laughs> right. But yeah. You never, you, you don't know. And you're like, I don't know this person. I want to make sure all my stuff makes it into my place. So it's just such an important example. But okay, before we go back to your practice and litigation, let's, I've been teasing this for a while. Tell me more about the move. Why, why did you relocate to Boston? So my partner, Stephanie, she just finished residency four years later of anesthesiology at UT in Houston. And last summer, she found out that she got accepted into a fellowship at Brigham and Women's doing cardiovascular anesthesiology. Extremely proud of her. And the first few months we thought, let's just do long distance for a year. It's no big deal. You know, I, I'm working in Houston and I, I love the people I work with. 
And then, you know, as months go on, we start thinking about being long distance for a year and just, we didn't want to do it. It, it, I would rather be in a new city with her. And really my practice kind of allowed for me to be here because I've gotten to work with partners in so many different offices that my practice kind of just stems beyond Texas now. And then of course, you know, the pandemic hit and I thought I really physically don't need to be in an office right now. Yeah, it would feel a little absurd right now if you were working separately because you're just like, I don't see anybody anyway, I could be working or you probably would have flown up and just been in Boston anyway. Yeah, exactly. I'd be working remotely for one year. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I asked the firm if if that was something they'd be okay with. And they absolutely were. And they've been so supportive of it. And so I feel like I get to basically work out of two offices now because I've stayed connected in the Houston office. And so far, it's been really good. That's fantastic. When, so when, when Katie and I first spoke, it was when I was doing outreach because of coronavirus and you were in the midst of gearing up for this. And that's the fun thing. So a little part of this podcast is obviously learning about Foley Lardner's and firm, but we have 21 offices. And so I'm just delighted that the firm, of course, would support you in working, you know, from a different office for a year. Because as you said, you're maybe one of the biggest fans of the Houston office. I mean, I think, I think if you're able to get back there, I think you will. So let's actually tra- now transition back. You're a litigator. What do you work on? Tell me about your practice. So my practice is general commercial litigation, you know, businesses suing other businesses, which is what I tell non-lawyers when we talk about my practice. But a lot of it has been in the space of energy litigation. So we represent exploration and production companies, oil field service companies, and then outside of the oil and gas space, electricity companies, renewable energy companies. So really the full spectrum of energy. And then in recent years, I've gotten to work on stuff outside of that space for various clients, whether in the insurance industry, manufacturing, a bunch of different industries at this point, just handling all types of litigation for those companies. I've gotten to do four arbitrations now, which have been really awesome and actually got to do things in the arbitrations, like present witnesses, cross-examine witnesses. And so that's been really awesome, but I'm still waiting on my first jury trial. I practiced for seven and a half years, never made it to that jury trial. So hope, but hope, because you're getting, you're at the six years, hopefully that, that is soon for you. What I find sort of funny is, yes, that strain of eventually being a lawyer was apparent when you drafted that contract when you were five or six, but it is drafting. So I was like, I don't know, where's this transactional thing? But everything else you've said, you sound like a litigator through and through, including the uh, loving moot court. Yes, absolutely. And did you ever consider even briefly anything other than litigation once you're in law school? No, not for one second. <laughs> that was my guess. Well, when I and I ask that because as you said, you start law school and everybody seems to know what's going on, but you don't. So you have to figure it out. But when I'm talking to law students, I often tell them that you don't know it yet, but your bend toward one area of the law or another is actually really apparent, but you tend not to know it when you're in it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I just, I find that really funny. Like when I was a summer associate in law firms as in law school, I never took a corporate assignment. I just didn't want to. I'd read them and I was like, I don't know. I don't know what this says. (laughs) (laughs) I can't, I can't do this. So apologies, you know, I'm not trying to offend anybody who's corporate, but I do think there's some, a bit of a friendly rivalry sometimes between the transactional side of the house and the litigators and any firm where the litigators are like, 
we don't fully know what you do, but we think we'll be litigating over it in about 15 years. Exactly. <laughs> okay. But okay, I thought you were going to say corporate is just overall like a friendly practice because I remember this discussion I had with a colleague in corporate and a few years ago, he asked how I signed my emails and I to a, like opposing counsel. And I said, I always just stick with regards or thanks. And he goes, well, I use best. And I go, well, I can't say, you know, please send us these documents or we might file a motion to compel best, Katie. <laughs> I had not considered that, but that might, that might be right. And I'm talking more generally. I'm not, I'm not putting any judgments on Foley's different department rivalries, but I think within the broader profession. So just for me to, for me to clarify that, that is important, but okay. So now tell me more about, like you mentioned, sorry, I'll, I'll back up because I know that, as you said, Foley and Gardier merged, but I am interested to hear you expand a little bit more on just life as an LGBTQ lawyer at Foley, which some of that's also going to be Gardeer, the stuff you wish people knew. Yeah. So I will say it, it did feel a little differently going from Gardeer to Foley. Gardeer did not have, you know, any sort of LGBTQ affinity group. And I was out at Gardeer, obviously. I mean, Stephanie, you know, came to everything and I, I felt comfortable. But I, I have to say after the merge and becoming fully, I felt like almost like I had been given superhero powers to, you know, just kind of be so much more vocal about it and just say, hey, um, I won't be here Tuesday because I'm going to the firm's LGBTQ affinity group uh, retreat. You know, we have that. Uh, we're getting to do that. And so to me, I just felt like it gave me this platform to be so much more open. And that was really exciting to me. And really, even when we merged and just finding out that there was an affinity group, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And not that it was just like five people. It's like over 30 lawyers at the firm, as well as LGBTQ staff, which is so awesome. And so I've loved being a part of that group. I've met so many wonderful people through it. And, you know, getting to go to the retreat last year was just such an awesome experience for me. I'm so sad that I missed it. I joined the firm shortly, some maybe a few months after that, and now it's coronavirus, so we can't have any sort of in-person retreats for a while, but we definitely will. We were actually considering doing a sort of all-diversity retreat, which, of course, I mean, at this rate, we're probably talking 2022, let's be honest, <laughs> but that's that's fantastic to hear, and I having Jack on before, it's definitely, I think, probably the most or one of the most robust affinity groups at the firm. And I know I have to mention this too. And it's also, of course, an allies. And when we start adding in the allies, just even the listserv internally, we're we're in the hundreds of people, which I really think is a testament to that that group and the role it plays at the firm, which I think is interesting. One, so I think sometimes people, particularly let's let's pick on people on the coasts, right? So for me, I grew up in Milwaukee to someone from the East Coast or the West Coast, I grew up in flyover country. And then also with Foley's founding office being in Milwaukee, I think sometimes people may assume that our firm sort of isn't as robust as it is with the affinity group activity. And so that's why I just love having you expand on it because it doesn't, it's not the first thing that jumps to mind. Yeah. And I assume the LGBTQ affinity group has lawyers from offices all over the country. I mean, I think we're pretty spread out, including Houston, Texas. Yes, indeed we are. And then can you tell me even more about 
And maybe they're about the same. One of the reasons Gardier and Foley merge is because I think they were similar firms. But for back to, I keep talking about that kind of, that law student who wants to learn about Foley, what's it like to be a litigator? Like, what's the culture like at the firm and what do you like about it? Yeah, so the firms definitely merged because they had such similar cultures and that turned out to be so true in terms of just the people. It, it's been such a good mesh between uh, Gardier and Foley. I will say my litigation experience at Gardier has been very similar to my litigation experience at Foley. And I was actually very concerned that that wasn't going to be the case after the merger. I thought we were going to be part of this huge firm where I was going to get pushed to the bottom in all of my cases and not get to do anything. And really, my work pretty much stayed the same and or I got more responsibility going forward. And being a litigator at Foley, like it was like our dear, we staff our cases pretty lean. So as an associate, you're typically working with one other partner or maybe, you know, two, depending on the size of the case. And as the associate on the case, you're basically in charge of most, you know, drafting and working on everything as opposed to being on a case with like six attorneys and you're just pushing paper. So my litigation experience has been where I'm at the level of responsibility and I have been since I was a young associate of getting to do depositions, go to hearings, work with the partner on strategy and talk about what we're going to do for trial. And so that's been exactly what I wanted. And I've gotten to do that, you know, for the past six or so years. I'm so happy that you went there. That was going to be my next question was about staffing cases leanly, because like you said, there's just certain thoughts, particularly as a law student, where you're like, I don't know what a large law firm is like, but I see that this firm has over a thousand lawyers in the US, which is what we have. And you do assume that, you know, whether it be litigation or or, or, or even corporate, that you would be one of, I'm going to be one of 15 attorneys. And it's just really nice to hear you explain how, you know, at least with how we staff at Foley and Lardner, that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. And and that's exactly why I didn't want to go to a big firm. But luckily, that, you know, didn't happen. And that's just not how we do it here. Yeah, that's perfect. And I sometimes wonder if someone's going to think I'm just like, I'm just recording commercials over here. Yeah. Like I sent you the answer. No, no, I just asked the question. And I assume that the person's going to say something that, you know, others would want to hear. Did I get the script right? <laughs> I know. Did You messed up the script, Katie. Go back. We need to re-record it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm glad you speak to... You know, another part of the big firm thing that I was concerned about was just being a number, you know, out of the 1,000, 1,100 you mentioned. And I don't feel like that at all. I, at this firm, I know people in every office. I feel like people at the top know who I am. And that's really cool. And I, I never thought I would ever experience that. I'm also happy you said that. And like I said, I'm not planting these responses, but it's just... It's so important. And as I've gotten to know the firm better, and one of the things that actually brought me back to Foley was that culture that surprisingly I got a sense for even just in the few months that I was with the firm as a summer associate a very, very long time ago. And also, again, my apologies to the listener because you'll hear me mention that about 15 times, but that's just, that's my, it's my life story. But anyway, as we draw to a close, Katie, I'm going to ask you the same question also that I ask everyone, which is for your reflections or advice 
And, you know, feel free to style it to the audience that makes the most sense for you. But whether it be, you know, to you when you are what I guess probably 22, 21, looking at, at law school, stuff you wish you knew or advice to that law student who's listening about navigating law firms and next steps. I think culture is key. You know, enjoying the people you work with, that is truly everything. And if you enjoy the people you work with, you know, you hope that the firm is going to have similar people in other offices and you'll also enjoy working for them. But I actually have a good family friend who called me on Sunday because he just finished a summer internship asking, you know, what to do between litigation and corporate. And I was like, if you like them both, it's just going to be about who you like working with, you know, which partners and associates do you prefer working with? Because, you know, that's what you're doing for eight hours a day. You're with these people, you know, it's sometimes more than your family and you see them all the time. So you want to have more than a working relationship. I'm so fortunate that I actually am friends with a lot of the people I work with. So to me, exploring the culture of a firm and, you know, enjoying the people there, that's, that's the most important thing. That is so true. I've often given that same advice, which is, yes, your practice area matters, but the people you're working with, they actually matter more. And it is hard to understand that until you are in the situation. So I hope people heed your advice. And in the meantime, Katie, I will just thank you so much for joining the podcast. And by the way, if somebody did want to reach out to you or contact you is the best way through Foley's website. Yeah, just find my email on there and then shoot me an email. All right. Well, thank you so much, Katie. And thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.